secretly a robot? When the cleric is the life of the party. When the monsters know what they're doing. That is when heroes rise. You stand between me and my lord and kin. Be gone. It is not our abilities that show what we truly are. It is our choices. Welcome, brave adventurers, to Heroes Rise. I'm Lennon, and joining us on our quest this evening are two of the wisest adventurers in the land. I'm Tony. And I'm Ryu. And this is the 232nd entry into our chronicle, recorded on Saturday, January 7th, 2023, and released Wednesday, January 11th, 2023, over at HeroesRisePodcast.com. Unfortunately, Ostron can't join us this week. According to his vacation request, he has to, quote, attend a wild party. Wait, that can't be right. Maybe he meant a wild magic party? That still doesn't seem right. Anyway, playing the role of guy who ruins everyone's fun tonight is Tony from our sister show, Guard Frequency. So, Tony, what's in store for our brave adventurers this week? In this week's Adventurers Pack, Ryu shows us a new Android app she's chatting with. Next, we check out some D&D news as we take a look at the one D&D cleric and species playtest. And since there's a lawyer on the show, we thought it'd be a waste not to at least touch on the OGL 1.1 controversy. Well, I thought it would be a waste anyway. After that, we'll take a short rest and hear some wisdom of the masters on why everybody's getting a gun. It's not related to having a lawyer on the show, we promise. Before finally heading over into the scrying pool to see what you all have to say. And that takes care of the introduction, so let's take a look at what's in our adventures packs. Do you always carry this much in your bag? If we're gonna get out of here, we're not gonna need a few things. Name one thing you're gonna need the stupid roll for! With all the AI generation that seems to be the new hotness these days, and a cause for some rightful outrage, it came as a nice surprise to me when Gath very excitedly showed me ChatGPT. ChatGPT is a conversational AI that was originally created to explain complicated concepts in a simple manner, or give some quick generated ideas for most things you might need help with. So the examples that are included when you first start up the site are things like, can you explain quantum computing in simple terms? And do you have any creative ideas for a 10-year-old's birthday party? So there's a big range there. Well, it turns out that it's also pretty knowledgeable about D&D. And you can ask it things like, can you create a deadly encounter for four level six players for D&D 5e? Or... Can you give me some tips on how to be a better DM or even beginner tips on how to get started as a player or a DM for your very first session? So I asked ChatGPT to generate me a CR10 creature and it came up with a huge monstrosity called the Gargantuan Follow of Zathog. I think it meant follower there. I feel like Chat's naming could use a little work, but the creature's pretty cool and it's comparable to an adult dragon as far as the stat block goes. There's not a physical description there for the creature, but it does deal cold damage, and it has a frost breath attack, and two of its four attacks are made with its wings, so it's pretty easy to create your own details about that. But just to take it a little farther, I then asked ChatGPT to create some lore for the monster that it just generated for me. 
and then it gave me a description that did, in fact, describe it as being dragon-like and having shimmering dark blue scales, and it is the preferred minion of a deity called Zathog. I also asked it to then generate me some lore on Zathog, which it did. The lore it gave me wasn't terribly extensive, but it was enough to go off of for adding all that I generated into a campaign. Now, unfortunately, ChatGPT doesn't have quite as much knowledge about other TTRPGs. Gath was playing around with it the other day and asking it some questions about Pathfinder 2E, and it got a few things wrong. Also, it isn't quite up on current events, as its knowledge base cuts off at the end of 2021, so it's also not up to date on all of the official Wizards offerings. Though, I guess you don't really need those if you're just using it for generation. I'm also not entirely sure that I believed it when it told me that the possibility of it becoming Skynet was zero, but I digress. Anyway, ChatGPT is currently free to use, and it's in the community research phase, but you do still need to create an also free OpenAI account to use it. There's also the possibility of it becoming a paid service later as it completes its current phase, so keep that in mind. But until then, at least, this is a great free resource to use for helping you out with your game. It's kind of interesting how AI in general might actually, like, low-key revolutionize a lot in this hobby space, because if you take something like this and combine it with the AI art generators, so ask it to generate you the uh, gargantuan follower of Zathog, um, you know, in the style of whatever artist that you like and everything like this. And I know that there's a lot of interesting discussion happening around AI with the art space at the moment as well. So again, I don't really know quite what the future holds for all of it. But if you were to take both of those, you could probably generate quite a lot of very quick adventures and things like that completely full of artwork that you could then just tweak ever so slightly because there are a couple of things in here that you said it didn't quite get right calling it things like the gargantuan follow of zathog and that doesn't make sense you know so going back on that when it first created the monster it called it the gargantuan fey of zathog but then later called it the follow and then when i asked for the lore it called it the follow as well I thought that you was know, interesting. Let's not nitpick too much, because when you ask the question, did you make up Zathog, or is he part of 5e canon, you spelled it canon like gun, and then it fixed it ah. fixed you in its answer, and even put it in quotes. There is no one, quote, canon, C-O-N-O, so it's calling you out on your misspelling. I mean, let's go back to the <laughs> Skynet question. I'm, I, I'm with you. I think he was lying to you. I, I think it's 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 already started. <laughs> and he's just doing this follow follower Faye thing to throw everybody off. Oh, silly me. I'm just a dumb uh, AI. Yeah, no. He's he's calling you out right there. Yeah, I don't, I don't really believe it about the Skynet thing. <laughs> so, Tony, do you think you'd ever use something like this to even possibly kickstart a campaign idea? So, uh, one thing about my creative process is that I'm terrible coming up with original stuff. But if somebody hands me a piece of anything, I can riff on it all day long. So the right. answer is yes. The answer is give give me something to start with, and I will edit it. Uh, and so if I just right. if I just need something to you know I need a placeholder bad guy, I want him to be old, you know. Then whatever it gives me, I'll go. All right, I'll start with that. Um, yeah, no, I could. Yeah, this. I think that the debate about the art stuff 
and now even the sort of you know character creation type things, I think it's a good place to take shortcuts. I think it's a good place mm-hmm. to generate ideas that then you give to a human and say, start here, and then I want to do this. And then you, and I, I think that's how this is going to end up. Yeah, absolutely. I can see that as well. I mean, with the art side of it, there's a lot of talk around the copyright of the artworks because it, rather than wholesale creating words like this one is doing, the art ones actually like lift parts of paintings and merge them together in that. So there's like multiple different artists work that don't necessarily grant permission for them to be used in well any purpose really they don't grant anybody a reproduction license so the art side of it like I said that's a little bit a little bit more of an interesting area but something like this where it can just effectively very advanced mad libs its way to an item or an enemy or whatever uh yeah i like this i think this is good i'm gonna have to play around with this a little bit more I don't know. Tony was rude to me about spelling. It wasn't me. It was the thing. Yeah, but then you had to bring it up. Could have just left it. You were were going follow. I mean, you were calling out the AI. I'm just saying the AI called you right back out. I was agreeing with you that it's Skynet. I was agreeing with you. Also, we we don't know that Tony isn't an AI. I could be a duck. I could be a duck. You don't know. It's the internet. Links to ChatGPT can be found in our show notes, but is there something that's an absolute must-have at your tables? Found a cool app, book, or other item you'd like to share with other adventurers and dungeon masters? If so, let us know about it on social media at Heroes Rise D&D, or by emailing sendingstone at heroesrisepodcast.com. But for now, let's check out some D&D news. Sire, I have news. And what sort of news do you have? It's not bad news, is it? No, I can't take bad news furniture all over town has been turning into monsters. Okay, so we know what you're probably thinking. Technically, we're a month late reviewing the one D&D cleric and revised species playtest, but here's the thing. We're just following Wizards' lead. If they can pledge to produce content once a month and then have it come out roughly once a month, then we can pledge to review it once a month and instead review it roughly once a month. Plus, there's a whole, you know, holidays thing with what with you know festivities and good cheer and then all the peace on earth and stuff and the whatnot. Besides, in the words of another wise wizard, a hero's rise review is never late, nor is it early. It arrives precisely when it means to. Anyway, the cleric. In one D&D, clerics are part of the priests class group alongside druids and paladins. Stewards of divine or primal magic, priests focus on healing utility, and defense to aid their allies on the field, as well as uh, absorbing a hit or two themselves. The cleric specifically draws power from the realms of the gods and harnesses it to work miracles. Not every acolyte or officiant at a temple or shrine is a cleric, but many clerics do associate themselves with a particular deity and place of worship. And whilst many acolytes and officiants can pray for you, and may even claim to speak for the gods, Few can marshal the power of those gods the way a cleric can. The cleric previewed in the playtest is of the life domain persuasion, and much like the other classes in 1D&D, has been standardized with regards to leveling, meaning you gain life domain abilities at 3rd, 6th, 10th, and 14th levels, and cleric class abilities at all other levels. So kicking things off at level 1, you start out with hit points equal to 8 plus your constitution modifier, with proficiencies in wisdom and charisma. You're trained in persuasion and religion, but you can opt to choose two from history, insight, medicine, persuasion, and religion instead, should you wish. 
You're also proficient in all simple weapons, are able to equip light and medium armor, and can don shields. As a first level character, you start with either 110 gold pieces, or a chain shirt, holy symbol, mace, shield, a priest's pack, and 7 gold pieces. What's a priest pack, we hear you cry? Well, it's about 33 gold pieces. It's also a new item containing a backpack, blanket, lamp, holy water, 7 days worth of rations, a robe, and a tinderbox. At first level, you gain your channel divinity abilities, both usable up to your proficiency number per long rest, yada yada, uh, divine spark, and turn undead. Divine Spark has you roll a number of d8s equal to your proficiency bonus, which you can then use to either restore hit points to a creature of your choice, or force a creature to make a constitution saving throw, causing them to take radiant damage if they fail. Turn Undead does what it classically does, and it makes each undead within 30 feet of you make a wisdom saving throw, and if they fail, they're... Oh, hang on, no, this one says Dazed, which is a new condition where they can either move or they can take an action, but not both. Oh, no, wait. Then it says that a creature dazed in this way, the only action that they are allowed to take is the dash action, and if it does so or it moves, it must end the turn further from where it started. Okay, it is the classic turn undead, just weirdly wordy. Level 1 also unlocks spellcasting, and as a prepared spellcaster, you get access to everything on the divine spell list, though recommendations are provided. At second level, you dedicate yourself to a holy order where you can choose to be a protector, scholar, or thaumaturge. Protectors gain proficiency in martial weapons and heavy armor, scholars gain additional skills with bonuses to ability checks, and thaumaturges gain an extra divine cantrip and an additional use of their channel divinity. Third and fourth levels give you a subclass ability and a feat, respectively. And then at fifth level, you can upgrade your turn undead into smite undead. Whenever you would turn the undead, you can roll a number of d8s equal to your proficiency bonus, and each undead who fails their saving throw also takes radiant damage equal to the roll's total. Sixth level is another subclass ability, but seventh level grants you blessed strikes. Whenever you cast a cantrip and a creature takes damage from it, or you hit it with a weapon attack, you can also deal 1d8 radiant damage to a creature through your strikes, receiving an almighty blessing. Unfortunately, you can only do this once per turn. 8th level is another feat, Ninth level is a second selection from the Holy Orders list, and 10th level is another subclass feature. At level 11, you unlock Divine Intervention, where, as an action, you can beseech your deity to assist with whatever your heart desires, and all you need to do is roll a d100 and get a result equal to or lower than your cleric level. If you do, the DM gets to divinely assist you. Uh, yeah, uh, sorry guys, the DM does in fact get the final say. If your intervention is successful, then you can't use the ability for two d6 days. Otherwise, if your deity told you that your call is very important to them uh, and is then held in a queue, well, you can try it again after a long rest. 12th level is a feat. 14th level is a subclass feature. 16th level is another feat. 18th level is greater divine intervention, where your divine intervention just succeeds automatically and the reuse is shortened to 2d4 days. 19th level is a feat, and 20th level is the classic 1D&D epic boon. And of course, no cleric is complete without their domain, so for a quick rundown of the life domain, at 3rd level you unlock your domain spells for casting from 3rd through 9th level, and the Disciple of Life feature, where your healing spells deal an additional 2 plus your cleric level HP. 
Sixth level grants you Preserve Life, letting you expend a Channel Divinity to restore five times your Cleric level of HP divided amongst any number of creatures that you see fit. However, you can restore no more than half of their hit point maximum in this manner. Tenth level sees you become a Blessed Healer, and whenever you cast a healing spell, you regain two plus the spell's level HP for yourself. And lastly, at fourteenth level, you get Supreme Healing, which sees you stop rolling dice and start using the maximum possible value for any restorative spells. So a bit of a tidy up of the Cleric, it's kind of had the edges filed down, the rough bits sanded in. I feel that this isn't too dissimilar from what we currently have, just a lot more refined. Yeah, I kind of went through it. I, I've never played a cleric before. Um, I've always expected somebody else to handle that thing for me. You know, someone else do that that job. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but I did kind of make some brief uh, comparisons, and I, I think the clearest thing here is that a cleric is a cleric. At least so far, they only gave us the yes. life domain um, in this play test. But it seems to me like they are you, the way you phrase it was sort of like you know rough hedges sanded down. I also feel like it's more channeled. Like you know, they're 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 they want more clerics to sort of be the same. It it sort of feels like like everybody like divinely channeled. Yes, yeah, they're say? divinely channeled into one <laughs> spot. Actually, and that was the thing that made me look at it the most. There is sort of a utility channel divinity. Like, you know, you can either heal or hurt, and that's just something that every cleric can do. Whereas before, like, those right. two abilities, the, the, the lay on hands-ish kind of a thing uh, versus the, you know, smite somebody thing, that was kind of, you mm-hmm. kind of found you found analogs in that in other separate domains. But this one is just like, no, everybody yes. just gets that. You can just have that. Right. And then we'll give you one other mm-hmm. ability probably, you know, in your, in your subclass. So, I, uh, yeah, I think, and honestly, I... More people might find the cleric attractive now. Um, it does feel like it is some. It's more. It's better defined. Let's put it that way. So you know, you know what you're. You know what you're getting when you get into it. Are you trying to say our cleric's not attractive? Because he is in the audience right now. So I feel I am talking about the class, not any particular player. Um, and yeah, I, Ryu's, uh, already, Ryu's already <laughs> mad at me about the spelling thing. I don't want to make her mad for any other reason. <laughs> So yeah, a couple of episodes ago when we reviewed the ranger, I said that I felt like the ranger finally had an identity. And I'm not saying that a cleric didn't have an identity, but this this is definitely giving the cleric a full stamp identity. Like, this is your field. You do this. Yeah. Yeah. You know, if you want to bleed over your multi-class, you don't say, well, I want to do this kind of thing. I can be a ranger or a druid or a priest or a paladin or a thing. If I want to do this, I can, like, start at any one of these six, uh, you know, it's always a fine line though, right? You want people to be able to grow into a system and play what they want. But I have the feeling that with D&D, the better approach might be, here are 12 options. Start at any one of these points. You know, Pick a character that you think is going to fit one of these 12 things, rather than pick up the game, start playing it, and then just do whatever you feel like. I'm not sure how I feel about the Blessed Strikes. On one hand, I do like them, but they remind me a lot of a less powerful smite. And mm-hmm. I'm just not sure how I like that bleed over, but I do like giving the cleric a little bit something extra to do. Yeah, I think if it was too much, then paladins would be super jealous because that's awful lot like uh, you know, Divine Smite. The one right. that ate into bashing something. Yeah, and that was one thing that I was actually going to bring up as well is 
despite having said that it like filed the the rough edges off do you think they've gone a bit too thin on some places and it's kind of the, the paladins leaking in a little bit particularly on the blessed strikes i feel like they start they being wizards started doing that already in regular 5e so i'm not sure that they've learned their lesson is the wrong wrong wording but i'm not sure that they've uh, been able to overcome that yet in one D either yeah i i think that following along with that it's there's there's the bleed over is still happening i think in the abilities a little bit i think that it, like i was just you know just saying a second ago with the divine smite and where you brought up the blessed strikes but i think that we might see a little bit of branching out i hope in the spells and i think especially you see it where they give you suggestions for what spells you're supposed to take like you can take other ones feel free but this is our suggested spell list for the priest i imagine when we see the paladin come out we're going to have a different suggested spell list you can change it if you want to so if you as a player want to bleed more toward the priests you know field of, of of play you can but they're going to have in the book a suggestion like if you're a paladin you ought to be taking these spells uh and of course relying more on your your martial abilities uh that, that you get with a paladin but i i think that they're gonna they can't i don't think because of the class groups right think they're always going to bleed together a little bit but i think that these spell suggestions are where you're going to see the difference between you know the default character type uh, versus how you decide you want to play it so one thing that i was actually well two things but i'll tackle them one at a time the first one is i was a little bit disappointed that this particular ua didn't contain any like feats for priests because one of the things that we have seen in other playtest documents is that they've always given like a few feats that you can see how to customize the class further and in this one they haven't given any but i'm hoping that we might see them with the uh, rest of the priest group when that gets released um so like uh the the druid and the paladin i'm wondering if they're just going to release a priest's feats bundle when those two come out but we got like epic boons in the list but no specific feats for the priest which yeah. If I had to guess, this is just a guess, I would say that most of the feats work is going to come towards the end of all this because just how I think they're trying to make the classes feel a little different and then but overlap a little bit in the class groups and then there'll be some differentiation in the spell suggestions, but there's just the, is it three? The three types of spells, the three classes of spells now, arcane and ritual, or arcane and divine and primal. I think... I think that the feats are where they're going to let you moosh it all together. Like, I, it would, it would, it would, I, I think that the way they're kind of going with it is is that if you still want to cross things over and not multi-class, you can take a weird feat to flavor your character. And so I, I suspect they're trying to make the feats as agnostic as possible because that's something that you mm-hmm. can, as you play your character and then you get to the 4th and the 8th and the 12th level, it's like, man... The party is set up like this, and then a couple of times I really wished I could do this thing, but, you know, my class is the wrong kind for it. But then you can take a feat that might give you some of that. That's 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 a, an ability or, a, or a, 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 a possibility for your character that you discover along the way rather than at character design stage. I really like the way that they are making the feats more accessible in one Yes, agreed. Yeah. So you don't feel like you have to take the stat increase 
I know that some people don't do that anyway, but (laughs) I always felt like it was better to take the stat increase than to take a feat in most situations, not all of them, but in most situations it was. And I, I like that they're giving the player the ability to get past that and get both. Yeah, it also means that you don't have to multi-class if you're just trying to dip in for one ability or right. you know yeah. one particular thing, yep. and you're not burning a whole level that way, which is the other side and of making it. sure that your stats are 13 and all other whatever other requirements you have for multi-class. Right. Yeah. 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 Um, the other thing that I was going to ask about is so this this holy orders, which is a new thing that they've put in at second level, well, technically at ninth level as well. Um, this is a way of clearly sort of differentiating the base cleric without having to go as far as the different domains in order to get additional flavor. But I'm wondering, is this actually kind of a a sort of sneak hint at what they're likely to do with the wizard class in terms of right now you've got like all these different schools and the subclasses, you know, represent the the different uh, areas of study that wizards can go into. I'm wondering if actually we're going to see more focused subclasses, but with something equivalent of the Holy Order bit for wizards to gain their additional flavor. Yeah, sure. I mean, that if, in my view, giving people choices early on in the game that are still effective later on in the game is, number one, hard to do, but number two, really good. You know, it, it's that that how many times have you taken a spell or an ability or something that is just awesome at second level and then you just never use it after eighth. Mm. And so mm-hmm. and so if you have, uh, you know, for example, a thaumaturge, you can get your channel divinity back after one short rest. You can get one back after short, short rest. That'll be good at level 18, just as it is at level two. Um you know the the uh, uh, two more proficiencies as a scholar. Yeah, you can. Uh, sure, I'd love to have additional proficiencies at level eighteen and level two. And then of course the protector. I mean, that's a paladin, guys. Come on, you're, you're leak. You're leaking again. <laughs> you're leaking. Yeah. But I mean, mm-hmm. but again, yeah. that that but that, that's that's an easy multi class, right? It's like the feats. If you want to be that flavor, then go right ahead. If you're wishing you had taken paladin, yeah. well, you know, all right, here you can. I feel if it had a slightly different name than Protector, it'd be fine because clerics, you know, they sort of, they've had this weird thing where in the beginning they were definitely like your Knights Templar holy warrior. I have a mace and I'm going to smash things and I hate the undead. Like they had that whole shtick. But thanks to years of video games, uh, Healer, like, which is what the cleric has, you know, become, uh, taking the healer off in video games. They're soft-armored, they're squishy, they hang around at the back, they are uh, not so much your Knights Templar as they are your Aerith from Final Fantasy VII. And so I feel that this is a way where you can still make them the the very gentle healery cleric, but if you wanted to go full crusader, and I also get why they didn't use that term, no. uh, then you've got the option to do that there. But I think protector was probably the wrong term for it, because to me, that implies great big shield, and that's the that's the other flavor of priest. Well, you know, they're 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 abandoning their roots in so many other ways, Lana. Maybe they, they want to, you know, show, hey man, uh-huh. you remember the eighties? We were we were there. <laughs> remember the eighties, man? <laughs> The second part of the playtest document relates to character species. In a separate blog article over on the website, 
Wizards outline why they're moving away from using the term race, which, honestly, if you don't know why, please see the last, yeah, I don't know, how long was Lenin's people doing their thing for? Anyway, uh, wizards are moving away from using the term race and have gone instead with species as the replacement term and state the following. <clears throat> we have made the decision to move on from using the term race everywhere in one D&D, and we do not intend to return to that term. The term species was chosen in close coordination with multiple outside cultural consultants. In the survey for this unearthed Arcana playtest, which went live on December 21st, players will be able to give feedback on the term species along with everything else present in the playtest materials. So, species. We're given three of them here. Dragonborn, Goliaths, and the return of a species not seen for a few additions, the Gardinals. Except here they're called the Ardlings. For those unfamiliar, the Gardinal Ardlings are brought back as a replacement for the Azamar, slotting right into the role of Celestial Counterpart to the Tieflings Infernalness. So starting with the old things first, the Dragonborn are medium humanoids with a speed of 30 feet, have resistance to damage as determined by their draconic ancestry, dark vision out to 60 feet, and the breath weapon we're all familiar with. New for 1D&D is Draconic Flight, an ability that when you hit 5th level allows you to use your bonus action to summon spectral wings on your back that last for 10 minutes and give you a fly speed equal to your walking speed, and you can use this ability once per long rest. The Goliaths are descendants of giants, imposing figures towering over all who are nearby. So, naturally, they're medium humanoids, this time with a speed of 35 feet and an ability based on their giant heritage. So, for example, a descendant of a cloud giant can teleport up to 30 feet into an unoccupied space that they can see, whereas those with storm giant lineage can use their reaction to deal 1d8 thunder damage to a creature within 60 feet of them who dealt them damage. All abilities are usable a number of times equal to your proficiency bonus per long rest. In addition, at 5th level, you gain the ability to temporarily actually become as tall as your ancestors, using an action to transform into your large form for 10 minutes, gaining advantage on strength checks and increasing your speed by 10 feet. Much like the Draconic Flight, this can also only be used once per long rest. Additionally, Goliaths also gain the powerful build trait, granting them advantage on any saving throw they make to end the grappled condition, as well as counting as one size larger when it comes to determining just how much they can lift, pull, drag, squat, bench press, or yeet. Lastly, the Ardlings. Long ago, celestial animals roamed the beastlands, a plane of untamed beauty and wild nature. Over time, many animals evolved into bipedal forms, though retaining their animalistic head and other features. Ardlings are as varied as the animals they resemble, and so come in many different forms. Available in both medium and small, though with a speed of 30 feet regardless, Ardlings are bipedal, humanoid, celestial animals, though exactly which animal is player's choice. And that animal heritage grants certain additional benefits. If you were descended from a climbing-type animal, such as a bear or squirrel, you can use whatever hooked appendage to deal additional damage when using it to create an unarmed strike. If you are, for example, descended from a swimming animal, then you can instead hold your breath for up to an hour and have a swim speed equal to your walking speed as well as resistance to cold damage. As an animal descendant, you'll also have keen senses and so gain proficiency in the perception skill. And thanks to your celestial side, you'll know the Thaumaturgy spell and can swap that for any cantrip from the divine spell list whenever you finish a long rest. I uh, actually, that was something I forgot to mention during the, the 
priest thing. I don't know if this was known earlier, but the whole switching cantrips out on rests now. Thumbs up. Oh, yes. Yeah. Um, that's something that apparently they, they being the developers of D&D, have as an optional rule somewhere in the original core books that apparently nobody ever uses. So they reprinted it in, I want to say, Tasha's. Nah. And still virtually nobody uses. So they're just baking it right into the class yeah, now. Yeah, that, so that just that just reminded me about that too. Uh, so yeah, I, I, mm. but I, I, I'm, I, I just have a question, and maybe this is my own ignorance showing. So what makes the Ardlings a good replacement for the Azamar? They are celestial. And that's literally, you know, we have an infernal race, which is, you know, the demonic, the bad, the that side of it. So we need the angelic, the good. Yes, but... To, to counter it don't out. Don't everybody like the Asimar? Yeah, but why have the Asimar when you can be literally any type of beast, animal type thing you want? So going off of that, do you think that the Ardling is going to replace future animal-like species? So like you're talking like the tabaxi. The herringon or the tabaxi, yeah. I I would like to say yes, but I'm not entirely sure because there are like animal races are one of those things that's relatively easy to write into a module or something like that. Like Strixhaven, for example, you can come out with the owl folk if that's mm-hmm. something that you really want to add in there. Whereas just saying every animal race is an ardling. I think wizards are going to be cutting themselves off from a group of actual beastmen races. Uh, bear in mind as well, the Ardlings are all celestial. So if you want something that isn't celestial, then you will still have the ability to do that at least. So n- no, I don't think it's going to replace all the uh, beast races eventually. Here, here's, here, here's a counterpoint. Here's a counterpoint. One of the mm-hmm. things that I found very confusing was when they started, you know, multiplying these races, right? Just like, hey, everybody, here's your race for you. And like, oh, wait, we're doing it again. Species. Old old yeah, habits yeah. die hard. Yes. Old habits die hard. Anyway. I know. That's why anyway. I, that's why I had to stop yeah, myself yeah. and I was like, yeah. wait, what's the word? It's not it's not <laughs> yeah, the R that's word. The R word. Roadmap. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, yeah. No, it I'll, so yeah, that confused me when they said it was just like, uh, you know, how is any DM supposed to keep track of all this, right? Oh, oh, I forgot your species has, you know, a plus two to this. And oh, yeah, you don't need to sleep and blah, 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 blah. All, all these other things might be that they just say, well, if you want to be a tabaxi or an owl man or something, look at the Ardling, knock off the celestial stuff. And there you go. This is you just make an Ardling and then you call it whatever you want. If you want to if you want to refer to your tribe as owl men, Great. If you want to refer to your village as full of tabaxi, neat. But you're all ardling type just use that at their root yeah. I, that would again with the theme of streamlining and funneling down and, and knocking the rough edge off rough edges off of stuff uh that would that would that would do that yeah i guess i just i i, I don't know it just it just feels to me that there are so many beast races to sorry beast species <laughs> to be it, it's difficult to get out of the hang of it when i'm thinking the thing is when i'm thinking about pathfinder i always say ancestry so it shouldn't be that difficult to switch for me but here we go um i think there's so many of these playable species that are beast based that to effectively wipe them all out and stick them out. Like, they haven't, for example, grouped the gnomes and elves, etc., and gone, okay, this is the fae species. They've kept them as individuals. So I'm, yeah. I'm not convinced of that going Yeah, forward. but those are like the old-timey. Those are the old school. 
And, and remember that this is supposed to be backwards compatible, so if you've got a player that insists that he's a tabaxi, not this, you know, ardling business, well then, alright, fine. Just go, you know, go find that and that's fine. But for new players and people just coming in and that kind of thing, you just give them the ardling, you know, someone's, I want to be half duck. Well, okay, there you go. Now you're a duck. <laughs> and, and, and that's it. You don't need to dig out the fourth supplemental edition of whatever adventure pack thing. Uh, you ha- here's a way to be a duck in Dungeons and Dragons. Congratulations. If we didn't have a show title, that absolutely would have got it, by the way. I'm just <laughs> you saying. You could be a duck. <laughs> <laughs> you could be a duck. So the Erdling reminds me a lot of the companion from Neverwinter Nights 2 Mask of the Betrayer called Kaylin the Dove. She was a half celestial and all of her siblings were also very animal-like and they were all different animals. And I, it never occurred to me that that could have been a playable species in an earlier version of D&D, but I liked how they did that. So I am glad that they're bringing that back. Let's actually just briefly talk about their abilities and things. So if you are a climber, then you get a bonus to unarmed strikes. If you are a flyer, so this is the owl folk, or it specifically calls out raven, so I bet, you know, Kenku could be lumped into that as well. Um, You can glide uh, safely downwards uh, if you take a fall. And if you were to jump, you can flap your wings to gain advantage on the ability check. Uh, what they're calling races, which I just want to read out what they have in parentheses here, which is deer, dog, horse, triceratops. Triceratops. Um, so if you fancy dinosaur racing, yeah, you know, if you're if you're part dinosaur, <laughs> then it gives you uh, a speed increase on the dash action. And uh, the swimmer types, which they've got as crocodile, dolphin, frog, or shark, uh, you can hold your breath and have cold resistance, like we were saying. Um... All of these to me seem like if they were on individual species, if we had four separate species, uh, like one for the climber, one for the flyer, I don't see any of this as being out of uh, out of balance power-wise. But I do feel that it's out of balance when compared to the Dragonborn, which is effectively another bestial species. Uh, th- this is Ryu's cue. Go ahead, Ryu. Correct him on this. I'm hoping he'll give me some more details on why he thinks yeah. it's out of balance. Yeah, Lemon. It's a dragon. Because, I mean, granted, they do okay, have... Okay, because they granted have... Granted, they have... Tri- <laughs> hold on. Granted, they do have Triceratops in amongst these guys, and I'd put the Triceratops a lot closer to a dragon than, say, a crocodile. So, I mean, I'll give you the Triceratops, but dragons are over here, and animals are over there. Okay. Now, the bit that I specifically want to mention is the fact that they have a flyer subtype that should fly, as the name implies, but can't. And then the dragonborn get the ability of flight. So, while I see where you're going there, the thing that the Ardling has per its animal type is something it has all the time. Whereas Uh... the dragonborn only has that flight once per long rest for 10 minutes. Yeah, that's that's it right there, isn't it? I, I should have read these abilities first. You know, reading the abilities tells you what the abilities do. What? But even still, reading it first? Who does that? I know, right? Nobody here. You should definitely have opinions <laughs> before you get still, facts first. That's definitely the right way to do that. Even still, I think it would have been better if the Flyers had an ability similar to the Draconic Flight. Because given that there's no plus or minus on the stats anymore, 
there's not really a lot that other than like you know look and flavor that to me makes an ardling a choice over a dragonborn and i get that you may not want to play a dragonborn you may not want to play an ardling whatever but all things being equal i don't see why somebody would pick an ardling which for example doesn't have dark vision if you pick a flyer they can't fly um they do have perception and they do have a spell but the dragonborn can fly they have dark vision they have a breath weapon they just seem to be so much better than the ardlings again you're making this sound like there's some sort of question about that i mean they are better the dragonborn yeah. but <laughs> so let's talk about goliaths <laughs> i think i think that the advantage to having an ardling over a dragonborn though is simply roleplay how you see your character and if you see your character as a squirrel, I wonder who that could be, <laughs> then that's going to be more desirable to you than the extra stuff that the Dragonborn has. Yeah, it, 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 yeah. If you're, just, if you're just power gaming, yeah, you take the Dragonborn. But if you have a character in mind, and like I was saying earlier in the segment, you know, my guy's definitely part owl. Well, okay, here you go. This is what you can do if you want to be part owl. And so, I mean, I think that's that. I think that's the idea is to make to, is to give people easy ways to build mechanically the character they have in their head thematically. Yeah. So let's talk about Goliaths then. Um, they are descended from giants. They've got giant abilities. I think that when you compare these to the uh, other races in this again, so you have got the Dragonborn that have the fifth level ability the goliaths also have a fifth level ability which maybe that's what the ardlings need a fifth level ability but anyway um that allow you to grow into a giant form and combined with your giant ancestry you get to do a lot of cool things there um i really like this type of goliath i think again it's had the rough edges filed off it is pigeonholed once again I guess if it was pigeonholed, it would probably be an ardling, but uh, it's definitely been given a focus. Um, but I don't, I don't think that's a bad thing with this. I, I quite like this iteration of the Goliath. I just still can't get over the fact that it's a medium humanoid. Because yeah. <laughs> yeah, they're giants, you know. Yeah. yeah. Uh, he's seven foot three. That's medium for some definitions of medium. Mm -hmm. Didn't it say they can be up to eight feet tall? I mean, I guess th there are humans who are eight feet tall. Yes, but so... they are uh, severely disabled and uh, don't live long and have terrible heart conditions so I mean mm -hmm. well in my experience most goliaths are barbarians and I don't know if you know much about them but the way that they behave they tend not to live long either so well it's not because of their heart conditions so I, I mean they rage well, enough well, I guess that's true do that's, something to you the blood pressure. Blood pressure. you're probably right you could be right, right. you could be right I, I think yeah, I it, well it's it simply they, they those those heart conditions may manifest at a young age but they're too busy losing legs and arms, um, and it never gets that far. It could be. More research More research is needed. So, granted, they haven't given us the 1D&D &D version of the monk yet, but um, I'm thinking a Goliath monk might be pretty fun as far as amount of movement you can do in one turn. <laughs> 35, grow big, 45, plus monk, 345. Right. <laughs> I'm just wondering about that unarmed strike uh, reach. You know, do you get reach under unarmed strike? You know, is it 10 feet? Is it 15 feet? Well, if your arms are 10 feet long at that uh, point. Yeah. I, yes. Yeah. I definitely think that that's... Absolutely. I would, I, if I were playing that, I would definitely argue with my DM. <laughs> I feel you argue with your DM over more than that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, 
not saying I'd roll a monk Goliath just to have that argument with my DM. <laughs> but if I did do However, it, I would have that argument, right. Speaking of arguing with the powers that be, though, yeah. uh, moving on to the next item on our, on our docket here, uh, for anybody who's not been on the internet and looking at anything D&D related this last week, there was a document that has been doing the rounds that's been leaked from Wizards of the Coast, which is the next iteration of the open gaming license. In it, there are several terms that have been redefined, several thousand words, I believe, and Tony will fill us in on all the details shortly, uh, that have been added to it. And it's given several people on the internet calls for concern, particularly content creators, and it has just led to a lot of outrage everywhere. Now, in theory, from what we've heard from Wizards of the Coast, the document was supposed to be released. It should have. The OGL 1.1, which is going to cover the terms of use for 1D&D, should already be in our hands so that we can take a look at it to start creating content going forward. However, it has yet to arrive, which has caused many people to think that this leak that's come out is causing Wizards behind the scene to do a lot of backpedaling. But... Um, at the moment, it is all leak, it is all rumour. We don't have anything actual released from Wizards of the Coast, so everything that we're saying here is speculation. And I believe, what is it you guys say, Tony? This is for educational and entertainment purposes only? Or Correct. words to that effect? Yes, yes. Right. Yes. Yeah. I'll, give you the, I'll give you the whole disclaimer. So, uh, okay, please yeah. do. So, uh, like Lennon was saying in his introduction there, um, these things are rumours, and, well, not they're more than rumours at this point. The, what I've seen is a demand letter from an actual lawyer and reporting from a reputable internet outlet, Gizmodo slash io9, that, uh, according to the article, um, includes analysis by attorneys engaged by io9 to take a look at the leaked terms of the OGL. So these things will and could still affect people's legal rights, perhaps yours if you are someone who publishes D&D material for monetary gain, like some people that we might know uh, around the community here. So my wordings that I'm about to give you are good for educational entertainment purposes only. For real legal advice, please consult an attorney licensed in your jurisdiction with knowledge in this area of expertise. Okay? I am not your lawyer. That's that's basically how that works. Um, but there's some speculation, let's, let's get this right out of the way here, that some of this is just internet hype and you know, people crying, you know, uh, the sky is falling like chicken little. Based on what I've seen, no, there are legitimate concerns that this is going to upend the D&D &D ecosystem. Anyone that publishes under that open gaming license or has published over the last 23 years, 22 and change years, um, may have their livelihoods yanked out from under them. So it's a big deal. Uh, don't let anybody tell you otherwise. Um, the first thing uh, Lennon mentioned a second ago is that the actual word count of the license has grown exponentially, literally by an order of magnitude. It was about 900 words. According to the reporting that I've seen, it's now over 9,000. That makes me kind of giggle when they call this version 1.1 versus the 1.0 uh, parenthetical A that was published in the year 2000. So that's funny. Because you don't you don't add eighty one hundred words and call that a dot revision. 
No, no, that's a right. this is two. That's a major yeah, revision. Of that yeah, point. this is two point This might be this might be fourteen guys. I mean, seriously, this is yeah. Mm-hmm. That's that's that is a major departure from what it was. I actually went back and read the original um, open gaming license, and it is very broad. And people over the last twenty plus years have used it to create a lot of the stuff that many players and many DMs use routinely. Uh, you know, basically Pathfinder was built on this. Uh, that's why the critical role people could start their game in Pathfinder and then convert it back to D&D because a lot of the same concepts and, and spells and characteristics and stats and all that stuff were compatible. Uh, so, you know, that open gaming license founded and made possible a, a, a burgeoning ecosystem of creators and players around D&D, which then fed back into the D&D landscape. So the open gaming license was an unqualified win for Hasbro when Hasbro published it in 2000. This was post Hasbro's acquisitions for Wizard of the Coast. This is a Hasbro creation, the open gaming license. So 22 years ago, Hasbro said, this is cool, let's do this, and everybody did. So here in the year of our Lord 2023, they've changed their minds. Uh, and as many people argue, well, they're free to do that. Well, yes, they can. They can issue a new license going forward. But what they're trying to do with this license, according to the io9 article I have read, and what I know of corporate stupidity, um, they're trying to deauthorize or unauthorize the previous license meaning that everyone who's published under that license before, that's no longer any good. You have to come under the, the terms of this new license. The problem with that legally is that that was a contract, that old gaming license. That was a contract that creators entered into with Wizards of the Coast, and there were specific causes for termination of that contract. And just doing what you've been doing for the past 22 years is not a cause for termination. And because we don't feel like having this contract anymore from the wizard's side, that's not a cause for termination. So on January the 5th, this was supposed to be released January the 4th. It leaked out sometime prior to that. But on January 5th, a, uh, an attorney by the name of Tyler Thompson uh, wrote a letter on behalf of his two clients, uh, Sad Fish Games LLC and Prudence Holding LLC, uh, wrote to Wizards of the Coast and said, I've tried to be nice. I've tried to call you on the phone. No one would let me talk to your lawyers. So here's this demand letter. And what he's doing is he's making a demand for what is called uh, a demand for more definite statement from wizards. So what, what he is saying is that we believe you intend to breach your contract. We intend based on, or, or we, we believe that based on the reporting that we've seen in the media and these leaks, you intend to breach your open gaming license 1.0 published in 2000, which my clients have been publishing their works on. So if you don't intend to breach that, you should say so now, because if you do breach it, we will sue you. So let's just, you know, be nice to everybody. And you can just tell us that you didn't really mean it. When you say about the uh, voiding of the contracts, yeah. etc. 
So as I understand it, that's because the OGL 1.0A, which is the document that everybody is currently using, has a clause in it that said, and I may be getting the words slightly wrong, I'm not a lawyer. Uh, The original document says that it has a perpetual irrevocable license that could not be replaced by any other version of the OGL. And this version, 1.1, just says... Nah, screw that. This is the new one. We're not going to honor that. Right. I, I don't know if it uses the word irrevocable, but the because it is revocable because there's a termination clause in there that basically says right. once okay. you become aware that you've breached the terms of the license, like using trademarked names and concepts or art, art uh, artwork or whatever, um, once you become aware of that breach, if you don't fix it within 30 days, this license terminates. So it is revocable, but only gotcha. for that. <laughs> so... And only if you don't fix it okay. within 30 days of Wizards telling you, you better stop that. So uh, it, it's, yeah, it, there, it's, it's, it's pretty rock solid. And it, the, some people make fun of lawyers because they just, you know, do words and words and words and words and words. And, you know, the, the, they get, you know, they charge by the pound, basically, a you know, pound of paper. But really good lawyering, only, you only need a few pages for if you know what you're doing. And, you know, and then have precisely defined your problems and the terms and all that stuff. So by the OGL having short and simple terms that most people can understand and build businesses on and rely on, and then they had a frequently asked questions that was published online in 2004, I think, that went through and basically said their view, Wizards' point of view of what those terms meant. So if you were worried about particular operations within the license, you'd go to this frequently asked questions page and it would say, you know, this is how we intend to proceed with if this thing happens. This is what we think if this happens. So there was a lot of good thought put into not only the document, but also a lot of what ifs, a lot of edge cases, a lot of commonly felt concerns among creators. And so they, they had it all laid out and it was, it, it was very clear how that was all supposed to work. But with this rumor stuff and 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 the 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 announcement back in December of, you know, we're gonna make things. We're you know most of you are gonna be fine. But what struck me from their announcement in December was that it won't materially affect most of you. So those are two. Right. Sorry, materially affect the majority of you. Those are two really good lawyer weasel words. Materially affect is completely in the eye of the beholder. Oh, I can't say beholder because that's a trademark term. It's completely in the hey. eye. It's completely in the eye of the person who is doing the looking. There we go. Uh, that's a that's a completely uh, uh, trademark free. The statement. eye tyrant. Yes, the eye tyrant. Um, so if if you you're the one you get to judge if you've been materially affected, right? Like you know, hey, that really hurts my business, or that hurts my plans, or I you know I that wasn't how I was going to do things. So wizards has no idea whether something materially affects you or not. So that's one lawyer weasel word right there. The second is the majority of you. Well, majority is 50% plus, you know, 0.01. So as long as it doesn't affect 50% plus one of us, then that statement is true. But how many of the rest of the creative community does it affect? And in the reporting from io9, the people who are making $75,000 a year or more will in 2024 start paying royalties. That's going to happen, according Uh, to what they've said. So... All creators earning over 50k have to report earnings. I was getting there. And all creators over 750,000. Right. Have to pay. Yeah, you said 75. Oh, I'm sorry. 750. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, 750,000 has to pay in, tw- in 2024. 50 to 70, 750 have to report their earnings. 
and anybody under 50 has to disclose that they're selling. So what they've done is that everybody who's going to make any money at all off of the open gaming license needs to be phoning Wizards of the Coast and letting them know that's what's going to happen. Uh, what's going to happen. Logistically, what I gleaned from the article is that that's going to happen through D&D Beyond. So no matter where you're selling this stuff, you need to log in through D&D Beyond and say, I'm selling this stuff. And here it is. Like register a creator yep. account sort yep. of thing. Yep. And say what it is and where you can find it and how much you're charging for it and all that kind of stuff. You don't have to report your actual sales until you cross 50000 but you, they're building a watch list. I mean, so if you have a, a an adventure you're selling on the DM Guild and it really takes off, you've got big numbers on it, and you're not registered with them, you're, you're in trouble. You've breached the license. You've breached the license. If you register and you report that you're selling it, but you sell 10,000 copies at five bucks a piece and you haven't reported that you've made $50,000, you've broken the license. If you if you clear the $750,000 hurdle at some point and you haven't sent them a check, you've broken the license. And of course, one of the remedies for breaking the license is at their option, they can just terminate the license. You're done. You don't get to publish that anymore. Or they can sue you, but it's, it's up to them. The remedy is their choice. Right. And I was going to say, and in addition to that, one of the other clauses, which is also causing concern, is that when you sign up on the OGL 1.1, there's a section in there that says Wizards automatically has a claim to whatever content you create as a sub-licensor. So right. they get, I can't remember the exact wording, but again, it's worldwide, perpetual, blah, 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 license, all that sort of thing, which basically says if you make it, they can take it and market it and you give them that ability to do for free as signing up as part of the licenses. So yeah. in theory they could shut you down and sell your thing themselves right well you know that's the fun thing about this Lena. it's not like they i don't think under the term and again i haven't seen the whole 1.1 yet but i don't think under the terms of that they could shut you down and then just sell it but they could also sell your product or incorporate your product into say a book and then not pay right. you a dime for it you you might you I, I think it's likely you could probably still sell your adventure pack or whatever it is on the dm guild or whatever but it appears in this book and you get nothing extra. So, for example, the combat wheelchair, which was something that just randomly caught the attention of Twitter and everybody loved and it took off and the creator of that ended up... Um, I, I can't remember the exact deal that she ended up with, but Wizards really loved the idea. It caught the attention of their Twitter. They were then uh, mini companies who were doing prints of it and everything like this. There is every possibility that if you create something like the combat wheelchair that catches on, you could just find that in the next Dragonlance book. Yes. Yeah. If you if you have that as part of a uh, adventure or art pack or you know whatever that you sell under the open gaming license, if you commingle that with anything that requires the open gaming license to use, yeah, yeah, that, that's it. You know, kiss it goodbye. I mean, actually, you know, don't you're not going to kiss it goodbye. You still own the copyright to that. You still own your right. creative stuff. It's just that. If they decide to take it and use it, there's nothing you can do to stop them. And, and right, which kind of puts people in the same position as, uh, for example, like Keith Baker with Eberron. Yeah. Sorry, yes, I know. Yeah. He owns Eberron, yeah. but wizards can do whatever they like with it. So oftentimes they come into conflict because Keith wants to do something one way, but wizards publish something somewhere else entirely. Right. And wizards is what gets used in D&D, &D, and Keith just has his own Eberron. Yeah. Uh, you, so you could fork the combat wheelchair. And there's a combat wheelchair that's in the D&D &D resource, and then 
that person could take it and make it a, a, a combat unicycle. I don't know, whatever. But I mean, the, <laughs> the idea is that you've given them a worldwide, non-exclusive, perpetual license to use that, uh, to use that artistry, that creation, whatever. You can still make things on your own and, and sell things on your own. But if you commingle that with anything that requires um, a license from wizards, it's it's theirs. They 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 scoop it all up. They, they scoop it all up. Um, so it's it's this is a problem for anybody who is not Wizards of the Coast and derives any kind of monetary value from Wizards um, IP that was previously very openly and freely granted. And that's really the problem. Right. I mean, the real the 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 the, the argument is. It's wizard stuff. They get to do what they want to with it. They own it. They invest in it. They pay people money to create more of it, to maintain the websites and to publish the books, all that stuff. They need to make a profit off of those investments. That is fine. Everyone agrees with that. Well, most people agree with that. I think most reasonable people agree. Right. I, mean, I keep on qualifying these statements. It the majority, it yeah, the majority of people don't materially disagree with me. How about that? Is that weaselly enough? <laughs> there we go. That's I, I think that's sufficiently weaselly. Uh, but the flip side of that is, Wizards of the Coast has benefited from this arrangement and the ability of people to have predictable outcomes from their creative efforts. They have known for 22 years if I pay an independent artist this much money and I uh, 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 spend this many hours developing uh, characters and uh, backstories and whatever, then I can sell this for X amount of dollars and expect to recoup this much money using this license. And that people have what in the legal world called, it's called detrimentally relied on that license for years. And if Wizards claws that back and put something new out there, well, everybody new and everybody who's publishing new things, you're stuck. You know, the new stuff that's going to come out after the license is released, you're stuck with that. Sorry. But everyone who's had years and years and years of publishing and has stuff that's been out there, they are entitled to continue to publish that under the old license, under the terms of that contract. And that's where it's going to get real sticky. And right. there's the legal side of things, of course, and there's the PR side of things. And I think this is a humongous PR blunder on the part of Wizards. And I think that the way they're rumored to be doing it now is also a gigantic legal blunder as well. So it's right. a lose-lose for them. And maybe that's why, um, you know, it's, it's three days overdue. They're supposed to release it January the 4th and we haven't seen it. Um, I think that message has been heard by the upper brass and they hopefully are rethinking this whole strategy and maybe you're going to do something new. So maybe by the time this show is released on Wednesday, we'll have more news and it will be Wizards going, you know, we're going to rethink a piece or two of this and we'll get back to you. <laughs> right. And I do want to point out that this is only for things that use the OGL. So what that basically means is if anybody wants to use any of Wizards copyrighted terms or any copyrighted um names or brands or whatever so like tony was alluding to earlier beholder is a wizard's ip thing uh same with mind flare that's a wizard's ip thing there is absolutely nothing to stop someone creating a sculpt of a mini of a uh 
you know, like a, a Walmart brand beholder and calling it an eye tyrant, as Reaper Bones has been doing for years. And you also can't, and please correct me if I'm wrong on this, Tony, I believe this is true in the US as well, you can't copyright or um, patent uh, game mechanics. That's not a thing that you can do. So, for example, you can take uh, something like, say, uh, Clue or Monopoly or Scrabble, and you can make your own version of it entirely, effectively copying the rules as they are. You just can't, you know, specifically set it as, um, you know, if you're using Scrabble, then you have to use like different colored tiles, different shaped tiles. You can't have the board layout in the same way, but placing tiles down to make a word, you can't copyright that type of thing. So, things like creating monster stat blocks as long as you're doing it with your own art style and not doing it using any wizards copyrighted terms so for example magic missile you couldn't have a creature cast magic missile because that's an ogl thing that you'd need to enter under but if nothing else touches it then you don't need the ogl you're allowed to publish what amounts to game pieces so even if you want to do something like make spell cone templates you know that is all still good it's only if you're doing copyrighted wizards ip things so subclasses classes monsters that use spells things set in the forgotten realms or you know that type of stuff two two points here number one i want to re- reiterate i am not your lawyer second and second point is i mostly agree with you but that's mm-hmm. how it's been for 22 years i don't know what the new license is going to say and more importantly maybe i don't know what the new srd is going to look with look like and how the new right. license is going to treat the srd that is a huge huge issue and I think that's what really has people up in arms about this, because all of a sudden, if someone, if if Wizards is going to start saying things like, "Oh, Fireball," well, you see, Fireball has been so co- uh, intricately connected with D and D for years that, uh, you know, you can have uh, if you have somebody casting a ball of fire from their hand uh, that does area of effect damage. Well, that's so intricately connected with D and D, and always has been. So, you know, you're going to that's that that's something that if you have that in your game, that's 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 one of our things. That's that's one of ours. I, again, that one is speculation on my part. But the the way they're going about this, in my view, is an extreme overreach. And so at this point, I'm not leaving anything out of the realm of possibility with what they're going to claim is something actionable under the license. Because that... I don't think you're going to be one of the majority that's materially affected, Tony. Not me, no, because I'll continue to use the branded products from Wizards of the Coast owned by Hasbro <laughs> Inc. Thank you very much, sir. Can I have another? I mean... Hashtag not a sponsor. Hashtag not a sponsor. But, I mean, the the idea, though, is that if you... if And I know some, uh, some of your listeners, and some of our listeners, you know, because I'm on the show today, so it's our listeners. Uh, some of our listeners do, in fact, create and publish stuff. So... Keep an eye on it. It if you, if it's not your day job, it you know it, it, just, it might just mean the loss of a fun hobby or the hobby you used to pay for itself and now it doesn't, uh, or now you have extra paperwork to do for your hobby. But it's gonna affect everybody that creates content for Dungeons and Dragons and realizes any kind of cash from it at all. And just in case anybody thinks that they may not go full bore. Um, this is also basically what Games Workshop has been doing since day one. They aggressively pursue anything like this. For so Warhammer? It has... Uh, yeah. Yes, yeah, Warhammer. Yeah. yeah it, 
yeah, sorry, Games Workshop is then known to me, but yeah, Warhammer yeah. is it? And, and actually, that's a really good point, Lennon. Is that and just look comparatively? I mean, Warhammer is popular, right? But it's niche compared to the reach and spread of Dungeons and Dragons, and how Dungeons and Dragons is sort of like the core, right? People people try Dungeons and Dragons and then they spin out to other stuff and then come back, or they play something else and then drift into Dungeons and Dragons based on their experience with another tabletop game. I mean. Everybody at some point plays D&D because there's this broad ecosystem where if you're familiar with D&D or the other games, switching to D&D is easy or switching out is easy because of that ecosystem. Hasbro has benefited immensely from the from from the low restrictions of the uh, original uh, open gaming uh, open gaming license. It's 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 a shot in their own foot. Honestly, and I don't understand the short-sightedness behind it. All right, well, now that we're all caught up on the latest D&D news and I'm completely out of spit, let's take a short rest and hear some wisdom of the masters on why everyone's getting a gun. I am more than the exalted ruler of this land and the master of all I survey. You think you're the only hero in the world? You've become part of a bigger universe. Well, I never thought I'd say this, but... I think I personally now understand what the killer DM complains about. What? You've got ankle pain from the spiked heels on thigh-high boots? No. What? No. Like, why in the world would I have that problem? Hey, hey, you've got weird hobbies, man. I don't ask questions. Okay, okay. Admittedly, yes, but that's not what I was talking about. Specifically, though, her minion issues. Like, I can't seem to get any sort of reaction from my players when I'm just throwing regular encounters at them. They just seem to use the same tactics time after time. Like, I can almost call it out for them on their turns. Could you make them behave differently, maybe? Okay, like, I may be a warlock now, but unlike some people who aren't here today, I try not to use mind control magic on my players. Yeah, I think she meant the monsters. What, I should have them invite the players for a spot of tea or something? Let me elaborate. Obviously, some explanation is in order here. Combat in D&D can quickly become repetitive once the characters are at a high enough level and players are familiar enough with their abilities to figure out the best moves. This is especially true if there isn't a lot of variety in the nature of monsters or environments combat happens in. Apart from changing the type of monsters, like using one or two large ones rather than multiple regular foes, the next easiest way to make combat different is to change the environment. So pits, changing terrain, verticality are easy ways to change up the battlefield. However, if you have a campaign taking place in a normalized environment like you know, Waterdeep, that gets a little harder. It doesn't make sense to have a pit of lava guarded by yetis in the warehouse down by the docks. And that's apart from the fact that the yetis would probably wander away because of the heat. That last quip is actually what we want to talk about. A common rut that many DMs can fall into is making all of their monsters behave the same. Or, arguably worse, making the monsters behave in a metagamey fashion as if they're your characters you're controlling to try to beat the players. Almost everyone is guilty of this, but remember, it isn't really fun for anyone except you if you take all of your characters and punish the player character who's doling out the most damage. That is, unless it makes sense. To begin with, especially if you're a new DM, having every group of enemies attack the closest player characters and fight to the death makes sense. In most adventures, it also makes sense for the initial foes to do that too, But that's not the way all creatures in the world behave. Or it shouldn't be if you want your players to actually think about combat and who they're facing. In older editions of D&D, monster descriptions also have separate sections detailing how different creatures would behave in combat. 
Some of the descriptions also include details about how behaviour would change if they were wounded or if they had allies around versus fighting alone. Unfortunately, most modern 5th edition resources don't include that information, or if they do, they don't call it out, it's just buried in the creature's description along with their preferred diet and what they like to do on weekends. There are some cases where the behaviour of a group of monsters in an adventure module will be laid out for the DM, but that usually only happens when the creatures need to behave a certain way in order to move the story along. For monsters that have been around in D&D for a while, you can look back at some of these older resources for inspiration. However, if you don't have access to them, or if you just don't want to bother, there are still some general assumptions you can make depending on the type of enemy. Let's start with beasts, because they're not sapient, so their behaviours tend to be consistent. Almost all the beasts that characters end up fighting are predators, and a few thousand years of avoiding, hunting, and studying them has given us a pretty good baseline for guessing behavior. Your solitary predators like cats and bears generally want to be left alone. If they're very hungry or if someone's bothering their home, they will hunt and attack until they're too hurt for it to be worth it. In that scenario, they will start out going for someone separated from the group or who looks weaker. They're going to switch to whoever's in their face once the fighting starts, though. If they're defending their kids, however, it's all-out berserker fighting until their opponent is dead or gone, and they will just try to tear the face off of whatever's closest to them. So looking at monster resources and reading the descriptions can give you a good idea what monsters should behave this way. Drakes, wyverns, griffins, and chimera would all mostly follow this behavior pattern by default. Obviously, if someone has captured or trained one of these creatures to behave a certain way, they will, but for random encounters, it's worth it to remember the creature will very likely give up and run away if it's losing the fight. Pack hunters are a totally different animal. Oh, you are so lucky Ostron's not here. That's his problem, on so many levels. In general, packs have the same behavior patterns of the solitary hunters, but they're used to working in groups and they will do that instinctively. That means they will know how to feint and flank. So their chosen target will end up with multiple creatures attacking them, and when the character swings back, their next move is going to be to dodge while their buddies keep attacking. They'll also stick around and fight a bit longer. It'll take a few of them going down before they cut and run. If a creature that's usually in a pack is fighting alone, it's going to be very timid and hesitant about fighting. Basically, if it has to fight to live, it will, but it will also cut and run at the first opportunity. Any creatures with pack tactics or any other ability where they get bonuses from allies being around or within sight or something like that are going to behave this way. Then there's the non-sentient kind. Mostly these are the oozes and aggressive plants, and for them it's worth reading through the descriptions for their behavior. Gelatinous cubes, for example, literally do nothing until something walks into them, and then they just beat it into submission blindly. Sapient beings, on the other hand, move out of instinctive behaviour and into the realm of psychology. There are obviously a whole host of different responses you can model for enemies that actually think. To give you a starting point, we've come up with three blanket profiles that you can apply to thinking enemies. Fanatics, conscripts, and soldiers. Fanatics are literally the enemies we described at the beginning. They run forward unthinkingly, or maybe they stay back a bit if they end up with a ranged weapon, attack the closest enemy to them, and keep doing that until they aren't able to anymore. They cannot be reasoned with, and they won't pay attention to or care how their friends are doing. These are certainly the easiest enemies to run, which is why a lot of people default to this kind of behaviour. But if you think about it, there aren't a lot of enemies that are actually going to behave this way. The average group of gnolls or demons will fight like fanatics by default, Brainwashed groups like cultists or people deeply devoted to a charismatic leader will behave like this as well, but beyond that, this attitude really shouldn't be all that common. 
The average group of humanoid creatures like bandits or hired guards are more likely to be conscripts. These are people that don't see combat as their first option, or they only like to fight if they are definitely going to win. They're going to behave more like the pack hunting beasts. They want to gang up on and overwhelm opponents because most of them aren't comfortable or confident fighting on their own. If their fight is going well, they'll keep that up. However, if and when they start losing, their conviction in fighting will fall apart. Some of them might run, others will give up and try to surrender. A couple of overconfident or panicked individuals might try to fight their way out, but their decisions aren't going to be good ones. A way to simulate this might be to borrow from war games and start having the fighters make checks against wisdom to figure out if they've broken. If they do, you can then decide whether they try to run, try to surrender, or just try to fight their way out. A simple D3 roll would be a good way to figure that out. Finally, you have the soldiers. I like these ones because they're how you take a regular group of city guards or mercenaries and have them absolutely tear the player characters apart. The key thing with soldiers is they're trained. They know tactics, they understand how to work as a group, and most importantly, they know how to assess an enemy's abilities. Real-life Special Forces soldiers aren't only dangerous because of their physical training, they're also taught how to exploit weaknesses and circumvent problems. If you're running a group of soldiers, this is where you arguably should play them like they're your characters trying to beat the player characters. Soldiers are not going to gang rush the barbarian who's soaking up hits and knocking everyone down. They will have one or two people engage them, and then they'll focus the rest of their attention on taking out the cleric that's healing the barbarian, or the ranger that's firing arrows from 100 feet back and isn't wearing armor. And if a rogue or a warlock is sniping at them from an elevated position, they will actively try to take cover. Then, they will ready actions, so when the rogue pops their head out to shoot, a bunch of crossbows open up on them. When they actually have to deal with the barbarian, they're going to space themselves out 60 feet from one another and pelt the raging maniac with arrows until they fall down. Yeah, there's nothing melee fighters hate worse than turning a corner and seeing a group of archers with longbows 150 feet away. Just ask the French on that one. Soldiers are another group that will actually retreat from battles as well, but they won't just cut and run. They will try to make it painful for anyone that attempts to pursue them by using traps, covering fire from archers, or blocking spells like war or darkness. As mentioned, actual trained militaries or higher tier mercenary groups will all behave like soldiers, as will any devils that the characters encounter. And groups of elite bodyguards will not only be soldiers, they will be higher CR creatures as well. Trust me, any group of creatures 2 to 3 challenge ratings above the character's levels that fight intelligently with tactical awareness are going to be scarier than any dragon on the field, and I don't care what Ostrin says about challenge rating. Speaking of dragons, they are solitary hunters, but they're also fully intelligent. Applying different profiles to the dragons is a good way to differentiate between the colors. Red dragons, for example, are likely to start out like fanatics because of their penchant for overwhelming their enemies with power. White dragons, on the other hand, are more likely to behave like bestial, solitary predators. Other creatures are harder to pin down because their abilities and behaviors are a bit alien. Mind flayers, for example, could be arguably fanatical if they believe they're superior to their opponents, but they're also not big on physical combat, so conscript behavior might make sense too. Different giants are probably going to behave differently depending on what type of giant they are and who they're fighting. They might be more conscript-like in general, but pit them against a chromatic dragon, and it's fanatic time. Beholders? Who knows? Probably makes the most sense to just roll a die to determine their behavior at the start of each turn. If you really want to get into it, you can get more granular and apply different templates to different individuals in combat. 
The leader of a bandit group might be a fanatic or a soldier, for example, while everyone else is a conscript. Or the noble who hired the mercenaries might be a conscript, while the rest of them are fanatics. However you want to implement it, though, the idea is that if you have the different enemies behaving differently when they fight, the players should be more invested in changing their approach depending on what kind of enemies they're up against. So, okay, that's all great, but what if my entire campaign is them fighting through the halls of a fanatical cult that set up shop in a flat-abandoned warehouse? That sounds like a campaign design issue to me. Also, if they're in a warehouse, where are the halls they're fighting through? Well, there's, like, uh, I don't know, stack boxes and barrels and... You know, you know what, I didn't ask for this kind of abuse. Yeah, and yet... Well... As fun and easy as it is to poke holes in his campaign ideas, we probably should head to the scrying pool and see what the listeners have to say. What news from the north? Riders of Rohan! Message for you, sir. Last time we asked you, the listeners out there in the multiverse, so what was your favorite official release from Wizards of the Coast this past year? Which one completely missed the mark for you? And what do you expect to see from Wizards of the Coast in 2023? Which of the announced releases, such as Keys from the Golden Vault, or Bigby Presents Glory of the Giants, or even Planescape, are you most excited about? And finally, how did we do in 2022? Did you have a favorite segment? A favorite short rest? Favorite blooper? Kicking things off, Kendalich, aka Shiv, wrote in on Discord, didn't say anything for community question number one or number two, but for number three he says, Consistent quality and information as always gives me some ideas of what new things I might use for inspiration. Now, if I could just get my games to start up again. Sorry folks, you know who you are. Here's to a better 2023? John Free writes in on Discord, For my favorite segment, I pick your intro and transition pieces. It's easy to let all the content run together or paste it together very quickly. Your audio, storyboarding, and script planning team is fantastic. Rat Queen on Discord says, I always love the end of your episode. Thanks to hosts for making such an entertaining blooper reel, but an extra huzzah to the audio alchemists for all their hard work throughout the year and having to re-listen to those. Now that I'm running games, I'm going back to the old Archives of Candlekeep segments to refresh myself on lore. Super helpful. But my favorite episode of the year had to be the live stream of episode 200, especially the live play session that Indigo Spectre ran. And Casa Mimic Enthusiast on Discord says, Hey guys, so 2022 was a great year for Wizards of the Coast, what with the vast amount of releases. For me, I would say that Spelljammer, sorry Ostron, Casa, you don't need to apologize, he's not here, was the big hit for me despite the rather thin setting guide. As to this new year, honestly, I can't see them putting out much more material, given that they are focused on the next iteration of D&D. That being said, I wonder if we shall see any more repeats of older materials. Planescape looks fun, but we'll see. In terms of favourites of your stuff, it's gotta be the lore dumps of older D&D stuff. More of that, please. Thank you all for your hard work, and I hope this new year will be awesome for you. Was episode 200 this year? I guess yeah, it, it was. was. Yeah, wow, it was. such a long time ago. <laughs> it feels like it, anyway. <laughs> well, I mean, 22 was long. It was a long year. I think it was longer than most. Uh-huh. Also, episode 200 was long. It was yeah, literally it was all, all day. day. Yeah. <laughs> that was fun, though. I had a good time. It was fun. Yeah, I was going to say, it, it was an all-day broadcast, certainly, but the the recording and the setup and everything like that Three that days. went into it, that was... Three or four days, wasn't it? Minimum. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it was, it was a huge undertaking. So, yeah, especially thankful to everybody who put up with my crap that week, I can tell you that. <laughs> That's our that's our we're putting a, together a big show like that. So yeah, no, it, it, it turned out mm-hmm. well. And uh, 
Jonifrey is saying that the audio storyboarding and script planning team is fantastic. I like how Jonifrey thinks we plan these scripts. It's, uh... You, you write out a bunch. You write out a bunch of things. You write out way more than some <laughs> other do. shows do. We, we actually do. Yes, we do, but it usually happens about 25 minutes before showtime. <laughs> Were you in the document watching me desperately typing out the last yeah. bit of D&D news today? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, <laughs> I usually fair, am. <laughs> to be fair, to be fair. Uh, there is a document that I usually have open in the background and I'm taking notes throughout the week and then I try to, I like have that document open on the left and then think, right, how do I turn this into a script? <laughs> and usually it's up to the wire. So yeah, yeah. but... No, lots, lots of planning does go into it, so yeah, thanks. I am very happy that Jonah Free says that she likes the intro and transitional pieces because one of the very first pieces of feedback that I got from one of my players about our show was that he was annoyed that our transition pieces were the same every time, and I... I tried to explain yeah. to him that, about how hard it is to actually get clean audio from different movies and shows and stuff that mm-hmm. we can use for that. And he still was saying, no, you should still change it up no. every every episode. And I was like, that is so no, much work. That, Do you know oh, what yeah, that well, is? And that guy's <laughs> weird. That guy's weird because at Priority One, years and years ago, we, we had the same transition bumpers for you know, a decade for 500 plus episodes over there. And one time somebody forgot to put the bumper in or changed it to something new. And we got letters. Oh, we got letters. That like was... you can't, yeah. yeah, you can't do that. You you can't, you can't, you can't do that. It's, it's a marker. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a guide stone. It's a yep. lighthouse. It tells people what's coming next. And speaking of priority one, I can also remember when they were just using a sort of generic opening theme tune and then someone like actually wrote oh, yeah. a theme tune for them and they're like this is amazing we're going to use it the amount of complaints we got for changing the theme mm-hmm. tune was just it was crazy <laughs> like in my opinion the new one was better in every, every single respect. way yes but mm-hmm. but the people they they got used to it so that's why uh yeah we did have an offer from uh the person who does all of the background music uh we were in talks at one point about having vince Fept write a specific heroes rise theme tune but at that point i was like we're nearly 100 episodes in it's too late people have got used to it yeah i have ptsd we are not gonna do yeah that. no it, it's too late 100 episodes two years in it's, it's far too late mm-hmm. the ship has sailed now what we yeah. did do is uh for episode 200 or 300 of guard frequency, uh, Ben, our artist over there, did contact Ronald Jenkins, you know, sort of our Vince Fep, mm-hmm. and he did write a, sh- a theme for that show. He wrote like a few bars of a theme just for that show. Oh, really? Yeah, he, he wrote a few bars just. I was in that, and yeah, I didn't know yeah. that. I think it wound up. I think funny story, and I'm not sure if this is correct or not, but I think that that theme or that tune or that melody wound up in like one of his next albums. Like, he took it and gave it to us right. for that episode, but then he, like, expanded on it and, like, you know, and put it into one of his next albums. But, yeah, so y- you can do it, but it's got to be clear that it's a one-off or else you're going to get angry, angry laughs. I do want to say that one of my favorite things about uh, episode uh, last year was uh, guest hosting. I do enjoy this quite a bit. And mm-hmm. this is an, a way of, uh, of segueing something I forgot to talk about during the cleric thing that I just remember oh, okay. because one of the episodes... Again. One of the episodes we had... That here that I uh, participated in, what, one of the community questions or one of the things we're talking about were spells that could be awesome but aren't. 
Uh, and mm-hmm. I, my candidate for one of those was True Strike. And I noticed in the cleric thing that Guidance and Resistance are now usable because of the reactions that give a 1d4 to ability checks and saving throws. And if they just take that True Strike and give it to attack rolls, 1d4 attack rolls as a reaction, that would give you the trifecta of, D3, of d20 tests and a cantrip that fix it, that helps any one of those. So that's a, they really need to take that true strike and, and fix it. This is their chance to fix it because then they'll have a nice trifecta of cleric abilities or, or you know, divine spells that can help all three kinds of d20 tests as a cantrip. So is there any wizards of the, any coasts listening out there that need to do that? This bonus episode of D&D News brought that's to you by Tony's excitement over talking about the OGL and forgetting everything else we were talking about. That's right. About. I was very nervous about that. <laughs> And in general feedback, PixMathMemvar on Discord says, I miss the community and the shenanigans with my friends. Y'all stay cool and only roll crits. And that brings us to this week's community questions. Will you be using AI to seed your game ideas? What about generating an entire campaign? What's your take on the OGL debacle? Will the Twitter account D&D advice from a six-year-old need to start paying royalties to wizards? We've all heard the legend of Tucker's kobolds, and if you haven't, seriously Google it. But what about your campaigns? When did the enemies behave a little too intelligently? Did you ever have masterminds acting like mindless zombies? Details on how you can get in touch coming up next. And so this brings us to the end of the 232nd entry into our chronicle. We'll be back with our 233rd entry on January 25th, 2023. But before we go, we want to know, for you dear listener, how was the show? Whatever your thoughts or feelings, let us know. You can comment on this show's post on our website, heroesrisepodcast.com. You can find us on Twitter at HeroesRiseDnd. You can email us sendingstone at heroesrisepodcast.com, or you can chat with us live and join the Heroes Rise community at discord.heroesrisepodcast.com. This show isn't just a one-way conversation, and we always love to hear from you, so take a minute and tell us your thoughts. Make sure you're never caught in the middle of a quest without us by subscribing to us on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Audible, and anywhere else good podcasts can be found, or through our feed at feeds.heroesrisepodcast.com. And if you like the sound of what we do, there are many ways you can help support us. Heroes Rise is an official Dice Envy affiliate. Get yourself some incredibly awesome dice that will not only make you the envy of your table, but will also help your favorite D&D podcast. Just use our affiliate link, heroesrisepodcast.com slash Dice Envy. And be sure to enter the code Heroes Rise at checkout to save yourself an extra 10%. You can also support the show by subscribing to our Patreon. Tiers start from $4 a month and give you live recordings of the show before the Wednesday release. Heroes Rise t-shirts, pins, and a super secret patron lounge on our Discord server. Plus, occasionally, you might get dragged into a recording or two for some dissonant whispers. Lucky you. To become a patron, just head over to patreon.com forward slash Heroes Rise D&D. And if a financial donation isn't your thing, that's cool too. Every time you share our show with your friends, your family, or your friendly local gaming stores, you help our audience grow. And that's ultimately why we do this. Thanks so much for all your likes, shares, and retweets. We want to take a moment to thank our social media mage Ray Ray, our Conjuration Cabal, Blood Lake, Indigo Spectre, and Gath Memvar, our guest host Tony. If you liked his voice and you liked what he says, you can check him out talking about all kinds of space things over at GuardFrequency.com and our audio archivists Mikey, Bramwin, and Tomasthenes. Special thanks go to our halfling moneylenders Marty Chidorik, The Despoiler, The Hobbyist, Randall Evans, Brewhammer, The Sabi, Rat Queen, Amber Squirrel Craning, Strife, Cauldron, Daft Kronk, The Record Spinning Economy, The Shadow Known Only as Azeral, and That One Guy. 
Vince Fept for all the awesome music you've heard throughout the show. Be sure to check him out at vincefept.bandcamp.com and Love of Lowe's Layer, the designer of our banners and avatars. You can find him on Twitter at Lowe's underscore Layer and Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Lowe's Layer. But above all, we want to thank all of you for tuning in and listening to our tales this evening. And until our paths shall cross again, fare thee well, brave adventurers. This is Lennon, intro, sync one. This is Tony, intro, sync two. This is Ryu, really sad that I'm not sync three on the intro. I'm sorry, I am sync three on the intro. Darn it! <laughs> Don't be sad. And first really, mover of 2023. I'm really sad that I'm not <sighs> sync two on the intro. Uh, that's, that's not what you said. We have proof. Anyway, I know. intro <laughs> in three, two... And this is the 232nd entry into our Chronicle, recorded on Saturday, January 7th, 2023, and released Wednesday, the January, the, the, lots of the, beep, beep. This is Ryu, Adventurers Pack Sync 3, and I totally expected Tony to say Sync 3 just then for some reason. <laughs> you're fixated. You're, you're, it's not healthy. I, it's I am. not healthy. Uh, We're gonna need, obsessed. You're going to need to see some, you're going to need to see somebody for that. You're trained in parade. Parisian? It's where you go to Paris. I have no idea, but it's better than Coristan, which is what I said for the previous. It's where you go to Paris and try to talk people into giving you free cheese. I actually really like Coristan, but that's just me. You're you're twained. You're twained. It started. It starts early. I'm not sure what Quaith level is, but it's greater divine intervention. (laughs) Quaith level. Let's try 18th level. There we go. Um, give me just a second. I'm making sure of something before I open my mouth and say something wrong again. <laughs> no, don't worry about that. That's why we have That's editors. Right. They fix, we always fix uh, it in post. No. Okay. Never mind. I'm okay. good. Uh, anything on races? You mean species? Nah. It's not it's not fair that they, they put racers in with the uh with the Ardling thing. <laughs> That's not fair. Species is. Species. Right? That's what it should yes. be. Uh, speed mm-hmm. moving peoples is in that scenario, they will start going. In that scenario, they will start out going for someone separated from prepositions. Just a killer. That means they will know how to feint and flank, so their chosen target will end up with multiple creatures attacking them. And when the characters, my dog is now talking in his sleep. Could you not do that while I'm recording? It is cute though. They'll also start- <laughs> bless you. <laughs> Finally, if you have, no, you don't, If not if you have the soldiers. Blech. No, you do have them. Yep. They're everywhere. It's like going to the beach. What? Anyway. Just sand everywhere. <laughs> Carry on. Speaking of dragons, they are solitary hunters, but also, fo- uh, 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 did we, were we speaking of dragons? I literally just mentioned it. Yep. Did you? Scarier than any dragon. Than okay, yeah, sorry. Sorry. I should, I should pay better attention. Especially when it's yeah. about dragons. Jeez. Yes, I know, that's my fault. My bad. It's a double party foul. This is Lennon Scrangle Sync 1. This is Tony, I have tickled the thing, Sync 2. <laughs> this is Ryu Scrangle Sync 3. And Scrangle. I refuse to tickle that button. So. <laughs> that's going in the blooper room. And. <laughs>
<laughs> Scrangle in three, two. When did the enemies have a little? Yeah. When did the enemies have a little? Have have a little behave. That's what behave. that says. It's why am I? Why am I missing totally the B? Word. I know. <laughs> it has have in it. <laughs> Fair. And be sure to enter the code Heroes Rise at checkout to to sit So close. So close. To become a patron, just head over to Patreon. To be yes. yes, it wasn't just me. <laughs> I could be a duck. It's the internet. <laughs>